Our first reading is from Nehemiah in the 8th chapter. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for that purpose. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And then he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has, not, who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is the word of the Lord. Our epistle reading from 1 Corinthians in the 12th chapter. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, you are the body of Christ. 
and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Or do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you still a more excellent way. This is the word of the Lord. I invite you to rise in honor of the Gospel. Our Gospel reading from Luke's Gospel in the fourth chapter. And Jesus returned in the Spirit, in the power of the Spirit, to Galilee. And a report about Him went out through all the surrounding country, and He taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And He came to Nazareth, where He had been brought up. And as was His custom, He went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And He stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to Him. And He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon Me, because He has anointed Me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent Me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman, the Syrian. And when they heard these things, All in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. This is the Gospel of our Lord. You may be seated. Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the favor which you have shown us through your Son, Jesus. We pray, Lord, that at this time you work by your Spirit. Remove distractions from our hearts and minds, and let us ever focus on Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. There's a moment in Jesus' life where we actually don't hear a lot. We hear about him at the temple at 12. And then we hear about him at the baptism at about 30. There's a big gap in the middle of there that we really don't get to learn about. But Jesus walked the streets 
of Nazareth. And if you're ever curious what they look like, here's what they look like. There it is. Streets of Nazareth. That's where Jesus walks. Can you see him walking along there? Okay, maybe it looks a little bit different. The power poles probably weren't there. And the cars probably weren't there. But I don't know. They had modes of transportation. Just imagine it a little bit differently. Change the cars out with some wagons. Change the power poles out for some uh, trees or other things that were going on. But those are actually streets in Nazareth. They're small. You can just imagine Jesus walking those streets growing up. The boy of the town, right? Joseph's son. Learning to do stonework and woodwork. Hanging doors for people. Building tables. And all the other different and various ways that he would have put his hands to work learning the skills of his stepdad. Growing up. The regular rhythm of going to church, the regular rhythm of going to synagogue, going to Hebrew school, learning the Torah, learning all of the Psalms and the prophets, and learning all of the words as every good little Jewish boy did as they grew up in the backwoods town of Nazareth in the back county of Galilee. Near 18 years of his life, we really don't hear all that much about. Nazareth would have been a fairly small place by most estimates. It was probably about four or five hundred people or so. Would have consisted of the whole community of the city of Nazareth. Okay? Imagine that. Almost three hundred people gather across our campuses for worship on a Sunday. So a little bit more than that, and you had your whole town. There's a guy I went to seminary with as we were talking about small towns. And he goes, oh, I got everybody beat. And I said, what's that? And he goes, my hometown was 322 people. Oh, man. That was smaller than my class in high school. You know? Small town, Nazareth. But as Jesus grew up and as he made his way through life, learning all the things that he would have learned from Mary and from Joseph and from the other tradesmen and folks in the town of Nazareth and the other rabbis that were there and regularly teaching. Now a time has come where things have changed a little. Fresh off of his baptism and 40 days in the desert dealing with the temptations of Satan, taking time with mom and disciples to go up to a wedding at Cana and then now led by the power of the Spirit back home. Coming back home. They hadn't seen Jesus probably for a while. He was out and about and all those things. But after a a couple of months worth of activity, he's back home Saturday morning of the Sabbath comes around once again and Jesus is found in his regular custom, regular rhythm, going to hear God's Word. See, those Saturday mornings were pretty interesting. It's not all that different from what we experience. Show up. You'd hear a reading out of the Torah. And usually there was one kind of synagogue leader that was regularly there that would lead things. There would be songs and there would be psalms and there would be prayers. And then near the end of the service, it was open to any learned man from within the community, especially a traveling guest of sorts. And so as Jesus comes in, the hometown boy that has caused such a stir in miraculous ways in different places is there. And so you can imagine the eyes of the congregation wondering if he's going to stand up and read. And so as he gets up, goes up front, 
traditional way for the readers to do that. They would stand up. They'd be handed a scroll. More often than not, they had sort of a reading lectionary system like what we have. There's certain readings set out throughout the whole year. So you'd have your Torah readings in the beginning, oftentimes prophet readings at the end. Someone hands him the scroll of Isaiah and he rolls it open, whether he was specifically looking for the verses he chose or whether those were the readings of the day, it doesn't really matter. But he found the reading. He claimed Messiahship. Let them know that he was there to liberate people from their captivity, to restore sight to the blind, to lift up the poor and preach good news to them and preach good things to them. You can imagine the reception of the people as this little backwater town now, now finally might have their moment where they have their mark set down on the map, where they are lifted up with some notoriety and some honor because they've got a guy that's different than all the others because he sits down after saying all of these things to teach. And as he sits down, their ears and eyes fully attentive to hear what he has to say about these words of Isaiah and how I would love to be able to preach a one-sentence sermon that knocks everybody down. We'll do that one day. Not today. If he sits down, he says, today, this word is fulfilled in your hearing. What word? The last line that he read of Isaiah, I've come to proclaim the favor, the year of the favor of the Lord. The year of the Lord's favor. Whichever way you want to mix the words around. I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor to you. What's that mean? To have the Lord's favor. Christina and I actually had a brief conversation earlier about the Isaiah reading earlier yet or last week. And if you remember a little bit about that, the last line in that reading was that the Lord rejoices over you. Amazing thing to think of. So for Jesus to sit in the middle of the congregation and say, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, a year of jubilee, a year of forgiveness, A time in which all things will be made new and all debts will be forgiven. I've come to do that. And they all thought well of them. They were fine with that. And then they said, well, this is amazing. This is Joseph's son. That means that if he's around telling everybody, they're all going to look at Nazareth and think really good about it. This is a great thing. And in other Gospels, we hear that same phrase as a negative thing. Isn't this Joseph's son? He was a carpenter. Either way, it doesn't matter. I'm sure there are different thoughts going through different people's minds as whether or not they wanted to hold on to this Jesus for their own purposes and let him know what life was going to look like as the Messiah from Nazareth, as they would give him a list of things that he needed to tell people in Jerusalem, as he would have his position and honor and be able to speak to people that they may not have been able to speak to, but they were going to let him know what it looked like to be their Savior. They were going to let him know that it was that place that needed to be lifted up first. How do we know that? Jesus looked at them in his second sentence of his sermon 
and said, Doubtless you're going to say to me, Physician, heal thyself. Right? We know you did stuff up at Capernaum, Jesus. Do that here. Heal us here. Fix our things here. And that mindset, I don't think, has ever gone away. Whether it was times before Jesus when the people would tell God what they wanted and the way things were going to go, whether it was the times of the people in that synagogue listening to what Jesus was saying and then wanting to tell Him what it was going to look like to be their Messiah, or whether it was every generation since that wanted to reach out to God and tell Him what their life was going to look like. To tell them what their life should be like because what they're experiencing is too sad, too overwhelming, too full of sickness, too full of poverty, too full of relationship issues, whatever the case may be. More often than not, we find ourselves wanting to tell Jesus what it looks like to be Lord of our lives. We want to shape His Messiahship. It's not our place. And Jesus had to tell the people of the synagogue that as well. He said, look, even in the days of Elijah and Elisha, when they were prophets within God's people to bring God's Word to His people, they were sent to others. If you're not quite familiar with the geography, as he mentions Elijah's sending to Zarephath, a widow in Sidon, that is out on the coast by Tyre and Sidon on the northwest, that is outside of Jewish territory. Those are folks that they had issues with. They were not God's people. And then as Elisha was sent to go and take care of Naaman, the Syrian, none of that made sense to the people sitting in the synagogue. They knew what the Messiah was supposed to do for God's people, and now all of a sudden, they realized that He wasn't going to listen to their words, but that He was going to still proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, a time of God's love for His people. But it wasn't going to be on their agenda. There's a grumbling, and the rumbling starts, and they start to have the little side conversations going on in the midst of the synagogue. And they finally all gather around him and push him out of the synagogue to a cliff. And it looks a little bit different than the street. Gavin, you have that next one? There's a cliff right on the edge of Nazareth overlooking called the Jezreel Valley. Okay? That valley down below has a lot of history for the Jews. Simeon had things go on down there. Gideon was down there. Jael was down there. A lot of the bloodshed of the judges happened down there. The Philistines marched down there. A lot of things that happened down in that valley that were not happy things to think of. The people of the synagogue were ready to push Jesus right off into the midst of that. The wrath of man laid upon God. Absolutely amazing to think about everything that built up in the hearts of the people was pushing them to kill Jesus. And yet, he wanted to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor for them. It's hard to wrap our minds around how hearing that word from God would be so hard to hear. In fact, so hard to hear that it would drive them to push God out of their lives, to push Jesus out of their lives. 
yet I'm sure you've had conversations with folks where pretty much the same thing happens. You proclaim something so beautiful and wonderful, sins being forgiven through a simple act of baptism where God's Word is tied together with that water and laid upon you to wash away sin. God's beautiful presence in the midst of communion where Jesus is present in body and blood for you to nourish your faith and nourish your soul. And people say, no, that doesn't make sense. I don't need that in my life. I'm fine on my own. We'll just push God out. Quite a cliff. And it extends even further as we look at this. It's not a small area that you look at. And there's a long way in which this overlooks all the things that went on in the history of that place. You see, Jesus continued. Continued to preach throughout all the places he went about the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor that he promised the people in that synagogue was fulfilled in their hearing right then and there. And let me assure you, that same thing fulfilled in your hearing every single Sunday. The year of the Lord's favor continues on from that time that Christ took on the wrath of God upon Himself. The wrath of God placed on the Son of Man now instead of the wrath of man being placed on God. He took on everything that God had to give for your sin and took it away. Because God favors you. God loves you. God rejoices over you as you heard before and the year of the Lord's favor continues on and you get to hear about it every Sunday, every time in God's Word when you hear of your forgiveness in Christ. And that favor continues to rest upon you as you get to hear of the Lord's favor for you. And as you get to walk from this place, God's favor resting upon you. What a beautiful gift to walk with. What a beautiful thing that then shapes our lives not to look at God or Christ and tell them what it looks like to be our Messiah or our Savior or our Lord or our God, but to hear of the Lord's favor placed upon you. Forgiveness, grace, mercy, everything given to you because of His favor on you. Knowing that you don't need to tell God what it looks like to be your God but to hear that He loves you to the point that He wants you. He has forgiven you. He continues to forgive you. He continues to shower His favor upon you. And then when we go out each day, we see how our outlook on things changes because we know that God loves us. He's shown it to us in Jesus, confirms it in His resurrection, and then continues to preach it into your ears so that you will continually hear that the year of the Lord's favor has been fulfilled in your hearing. Amen. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You for showing us Your favor, that You have loved us, that You have given us Your Son so that we would see of Your love and joy and favor for us. Not just to tell us how to live better, not just to make us feel better, but that You actually want us with you into eternity. And you have made that possible through Christ. So thank you, Lord, for all the things that you have done for us to make us yours. In Jesus' name.
Amen. I invite you to rise.